You are listening to More to the Story, a weekly podcast featuring Pastor Drew Tarwater and Pastor Darren Enns of Forefront Church in Denver, Colorado. Each week, More to the Story podcast will follow the Forefront Church Sunday Sermon as Pastor Drew and Pastor Darren guide you through the Bible from Genesis through Revelation. Every podcast will feature in-depth analysis of the sermon and answer questions about the Bible. Now, here is more to the story. Welcome to the Forefront Church Podcast, More to the Story. We talk more about last week's sermon and preview next week's. If you have questions you would like to have answered, send them to life at ForefrontChurch.tv. Or if you're at Forefront on Sundays, you can drop them off in the boxes in the back of the worship center. Today with us, Pastor Darren Enns. How you doing today? Hey, doing good. Pastor Drew Tarwater. Hey guys, good to be with you. And I'm Rob Lazzi, and today we're talking about the Red Sea and all the speculation that goes around it. Right, Darren? Uh, uh, uh. <laughs> oh yeah, the, we give Darren a hard favorite. time because he won't. I'm trying to get Darren to speculate on something. He won't even speculate on the Rockies wins this year. Ouch! I mean, it doesn't get much better than three guys speculating about something that happened 3,500 years ago, right? <laughs> so, but we did have a question coming from a life group, and we wanted to throw that out there here to you guys because it's pretty on topic here with what we're going for is. How does the blood of the lamb save the Israelites here in the Passover as we're talking about like the exodus out of Egypt? Right. Uh, This is a it's a question that I've put down for the life groups to answer, because as you read Exodus 12 and you look at all of the guidelines for the Passover and and talk about the reasons of of what is written there, you you don't see a a really common theme that that we sometimes talk about. So I have this multiple choice question in the life group study guide. Yeah, how does the blood of, of the lamb save the Israelites? Is it A, like, does it save them from sin? B, from Egypt? C, the destroyer? Um, it's like this massive angel of death that comes through. Like, what in the world is that? Or D, does it save them from death? And our, our traditional answer is probably most likely sin. However, as you look through the text of, of chapter 12, sin language is actually absent from this story. It, it's not, there's no atonement in there. There's nothing that says, yeah, this, this blood is taking away your sins, Israel. Um, how I would answer it is actually D, death. Uh, it does save them from Egypt. You know, this is the event that really kicks them out. Um, the, and of course, C, the destroyer uh, doesn't come down and destroy any of the Israelites' life. But D is death, is the, is the main one as you look and read through there. And I have a follow-up question then that I've been thinking about for a long time. And... Um, and it's this, why did Jesus die at Passover? If you read the, the New Testament Gospels, hmm. Jesus dies on the weekend of Passover. He doesn't die on the Jewish um, f- festival of Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is a festival where there'd be a priest. He would, uh, he would sacrifice one goat, which would purify himself so that he could then go into the Holy of Holies and do things. But there would also be another goat that he would place his hands on, pray over it, and he would put all of the sins of Israel onto that goat. And this is where we get the term scapegoat, because this is the scapegoat that they would then set free into the wilderness, um, into wherever. There's some kind of demon named Azazel in ancient Hebrew uh, thought, and, and this it was turned over to this spiritual force. But this scapegoat 
was the thing that took care of all of the sins of Israel. Um, but Jesus didn't die there. So Jesus is, is not putting himself into the role of the scapegoat. He's putting himself into the role of the Passover lamb, which it has much less to do with the atonement for sins. And it has much more to do with saving us from the power of sin and from the power of death. And so we're set free from that bondage to be slaves to Jesus instead of slaves to sin. And this is firmly within a, a theology of the New Testament where, where that's what Jesus' death did. It set us free from that power. And then he rose from the grave and, and defeated death. Um, now, of course, he did sacrifice himself for our sins. That language is still in there and very much a big part of what it was. But I maintain that it's actually not the main one, especially here as we're talking about Passover. What do you think, Drew? Yeah, it's a great, it's a great question to dive into. The, uh, I think there is, there's power in that, in that discussion that he did die at Passover because we do see as we discussed, the 10th plague was the Passover lamb. And, and as you mentioned, I thought that was a great explanation of that. The, the purpose was not forgiving Israel from sin. It was passing over the death of the firstborn, which God was using to judge Egypt with. And so the, the blood of the lamb on the doorpost and the lentils, the, you know, the, the destroyer passes over that home and it, the firstborn survives. And it's this beautiful picture of the, the one lamb representing the death of a first of the firstborn that God took that upon, you know, put that on the lamb and, and, and that, that family did not experience death. Whereas in Egypt, Pharaoh's son and every one of the, the military sons and, and everyone across Egypt lost their firstborn son. And so, yeah, I think that the Jesus dying on Passover is powerful because again, it's the firstborn son, right? God's son, dying and it's death passing over us. And, and then it sets up Jesus rising from the grave and defeating sin and death forever. Uh, but, but I agree. I do, I do believe that, um, you know, we do see, you know, when, when we saw John 1 29 this, this Sunday where John the Baptist says, behold, the lamb of God who takes the away the sins of the world. And so Jesus's death on the cross takes away, atones for, for the sins of mankind, when you put your faith in Jesus, your sins are forgiven past, present, and future. But it, it was strategically placed on the Passover to point back to what happened 1,500 years before at, on, the 10th, on the 10th plague, where we see that, that the very first Passover lamb came. And we talked a little bit on Sunday, it just the, the beautiful picture of, you know, in Genesis 22, we have Abraham and Isaac, and, and God brings a ram God brings one lamb for one person. Here we see one lamb for one household. Um, throughout the, uh, the, like as you said, Yom Kippur, throughout the, the, you know, the Old Testament on the Day of Atonement, we do see one lamb for the nation. And then we see Jesus, one lamb for the world. I just love that picture of how of God inserts himself into our story. I think there's so much power there. But going all the way back to the question that we're talking about today, why, um, why did, you know, what was the purpose of the Passover lamb? It was to save Israel from death during that 10th plague. I have a question. This is actually unscripted. So we'll see what, what you think, Drew and, and Rob. Uh, does God hate leaven? Does God hate yeast? Because <laughs> at the festival of unleavened bread, they didn't, they took yeast out of their bread. So like, does yeah. God hate yeast? You know, it's a great question. I think uh, I actually almost talked about this. You know, if you see in, um, I believe it is in Exodus 13, right, where God's like, hey, we're going to have this, we're going to have this uh, celebration one day uh, of unleavened bread because it's another way to remember that they had to leave and flee 
Israel, or Egypt quickly, right? And before so, the bread yeah, rose. Before yeah. the bread rose. And so <laughs> I think when you look at Passover and you look at the festival of unleavened bread, right, it's just God, again, telling his people to remember. And he often did it through fast feasts and festivals, right? And so, yeah, the uh, I don't think God hates unleavened bread. I mean, is, is leaven <laughs> good for you? You know, I, Is that gluten? Is that, I, I yeah. don't. I don't know. I don't think so. <laughs> yeah. But so yeah. So someone yeah. someone asked me that uh, a while ago, and and I was like, oh, that's an interesting question, uh, because Jesus then he, he gives a parable or he he gives a teaching. Hey, beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. But he also uses leaven in a positive light because uh, the kingdom of God is like leaven, and a little right. bit can spread and infect the whole thing. So I don't. Th- to, yeah, I don't think God hates leaven. But it, agree. It's, it now it's a, a fun question. question. Yeah, I think it plays <laughs> both ways, right? Like how how do you use how do you use leaven, right? Um, so, no, so great question. I, I, it's interesting with like, cause it's the speedness, the quickness they have to leave Egypt. Like it's always, at least that's how mm-hmm. I've always heard it. You guys are the experts on this. So, which is that reminder. Yeah, it's it's reminding, we, yeah, reminding them whenever they left or whenever they celebrated it, you got to have your loins girded, have your sandals on your, cl- your staff in your hand. Cause you're going to go at any moment. So ready to go. Yeah. How come we don't you do know, it's interesting. because we don't celebrate passover anymore oh yeah right we should i i want to i did once so we had what was that like celebrating passover once darren sorry dude bitter herbs are nasty there's a reason (laughs) that you eat bitter herbs because it reminds you how bitter their slavery was it's 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 nasty you can only handle a little bit of it so why and so they eat bitter herbs as a as a reminder of what slavery was like yeah oh unreal it's like horseradish so, okay. root or something. There's oh, the sinuses. <laughs> oh my gosh! You get, if you got a cold, take some horseradish. It'll get you cleared right up. Help us out with the Red Sea because there's some speculation about the Red Sea. And then, <laughs> uh, I'm just we're picking on Darren on speculation today. If you haven't noticed, that's the overall theme of the <laughs> at least the non-biblical theme of today. And so, like, why a why did it take so long? Like take so long is it what's the history behind the red sea help us help us out here drew yeah it's this is really fun you know if you look at a map and just encourage any of our listeners to go just google a map from, of the route of the exodus and you're going to get all kinds of different ideas and different concepts the one of the things we see in exodus 13 is that when pharaoh says after the passover or after yeah after the 10th plague pharaoh says get out and so Israel, yeah, they don't even have time to finish their bread rising. They grab their bread, boom, they're gone. There would have been a, if there were, if the plan was to take Israel from Egypt back to Canaan, there was a clear, easy path and it would have just taken them straight through, but they would have had to have gone through where the Philistines lived and the Philistines were mighty warriors. And so Genesis or Exodus 13 says that God didn't take them that way because Israel coming out of slavery was not ready to see war. They were not ready to see, you know, to see the Philistines. They would have got scared. They would have wanted to run right back into slavery. And so we see that God takes them the long way and he takes them, um, what, what many people think is going to be a kind of a Southern route. You know, God has a purpose for that, right? He wants to shape them. He wants to take them to Mount Sinai where he can give them the 10 commandments and the law. And so we see that God takes them this way, but also God does that too. Pharaoh sees them and Again, was it three days that they wandered in the desert till they got to the edge of the Red Sea? Was it seven? Um, you know, there, there some guys 
some different Bible scholars can go both ways. But let's work. I think, you know, we, we run with the pattern of threes. I think so for three days, Israel's moving through the desert, through the wilderness. And so now Pharaoh decides, I'm going to go after him. And it sets up this showdown between God and Pharaoh where God's going to judge Pharaoh ultimately and rescue the Israelites. The word Red Sea comes from the, and, and Darren can speak a little more on the Hebrew, but really comes from the, re, from the word the Reed Sea and basically just it is a body of water in Egypt. There was a lot of water there. If you go between the Mediterranean Sea um, and, and where we consider like the Red Sea today. Um, and so one of the interesting things is there is a lot of speculation on, and a lot of theories on where they crossed. Um, there, there's several different, there's several different areas. I mean, imagine this, just think about how fast a river can change its course in a couple hundred years. We see that in the U S the Missouri river looks differently than it did. You know, Mississippi, you know, all these rivers look a little different than they did a couple hundred years ago. Well, now you're going back 3,500 years. So imagine how much these bodies of water have changed from erosion or, you know, different kind of things, floods, all of these different, different sorts of, of activities. And so what we're looking at today at a map of what the Red Sea looks like and some of these different bays and rivers and all these things probably looked very differently 3,500 years ago. But there's really four opinions. I'm just going to tell you real quick, if you want to look these up, you can. There's really four opinions on where the crossing could have been. And one of them, the first one is this. It's that there's this northern coastal route um, uh, along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. So that could have been one place where, where God took them. Another theory is the Bitter Lakes region. And so that's the north of the Gulf of Suez um, there's these salty, these salty lakes. You can look that up, uh, the Bitter Lakes region. Third one is the, the Suez Bay. And this is a big body of water. And so you think there was an area in the Suez Bay that could have been the place where the Israelites crossed over. And the, the fourth one, I don't really know how to, to pronounce this one, but it's the Gulf of Aquaba or Aqaba. And um, there's a ton of different areas they could have crossed. What we there's a lot of speculation by non-believers that it was the, the the Sea of Reeds, which was like a very shallow crossing area, and a lot of the biblical scholars think well it couldn't have really been the Sea of Reeds for one, it is translated the Reed Sea, um, but everything had reeds you know so any body of water would have had reeds also it needed to be deep enough that where that you had to have this 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 phenomenon right where they could cross over so you have a wall of water up on your right and your left. It also needed to be deep enough so that when Moses stretched his hand back over, the waters came back down, and it would have washed away the Egyptian army. So what we know of today is the Reed Sea is a very shallow crossing area, and so that probably wouldn't have been deep enough. But again, I don't think it really matters where they crossed. What matters is how God did it. God set them in a place where they had Egypt chasing them on one side, and they were stuck by a body of water on the other so he could demonstrate his power and teach the Israelites that he is the one who delivers and he is the one that rescues. So it doesn't matter, really matter where it happened, but it's fun to talk about. <laughs> yeah, so the, the, the thing about the Hebrew is it really does say Sea of Reeds. It does not say the Red Sea. Uh, the Hebrew does not say that. So actually, the Red Sea, as we know it today, it, the big body of water there between Egypt and Saudi Arabia is the least likely place for the crossing. So why do our Bible translations put Red Sea? Uh, I think, Drew, you might know a bit more about this. Someone just did that a long time ago, and nobody ever bothered to change it, even though it's just wrong. Um, so I don't know. But yeah, a, a ton of different rivers and bodies of water have reeds all over uh, the, the ancient Near East. So... Yeah, who really knows? 
Yeah, mm-hmm. and just to kind of follow back, you know, there's this, we talk about the, like, the history of Scripture and translation, and we talk about just, like, um, can we can we trust the Word of God? You know, the Bible says that it is the Word of God. It's breathed out by God. And someone might wonder, well, why, if it was translated from read to read, would that have not been changed back for factual truth? And so there is the theory that at some at one point that it was translated from Hebrew to Latin or, or to Greek, and at that point it was translated red, and then they carried that forward. But here's what we know, that, that if you look at all of the manuscript evidence found of Scripture, uh, we've got, especially if we look at the Greek New Testament compared to what we have today, um, or, or the translations from Greek to what we have today, um, We've got 25,000 plus copies of manuscripts and quotes and all these things. And 99.9% of that is spot on. The, the, the difference is, is grammatical or it's non-theological. So mm-hmm. whether God led Israel to cross the Red Sea or the, you know, Aquaba Bay, the Bay of Akuba, right? It doesn't, it, theologically, that doesn't matter, right? That doesn't change anything from a doctrinal standpoint. God still did it. God still worked a miracle and God still delivered. But yeah, it could be a translation error. Um, if you look at a map, you look at the Red Sea and see how big that uh, that is, and then look at the Bitter Lakes region, and you think, well, actually, a million people might be able to pass through the Bitter Lakes in a day. Whereas you look at the Red Sea, that would take a long time. Again, speculating. I don't think it matters, but again, it is fun to talk about. Yeah, thanks but, for saying that, Drew. I, sometimes I'm too hard on our English translation. <laughs> there's only a couple things here and there that I'm like, yeah, well, no, yeah. that's wrong. Otherwise, it's just some fun nuance to talk about. So sorry for about sure. that if I'm no. bagging on some no. stuff. No, there's a you know a good comma here and a misspell here and uh, you know and a read to a read, but you know that's about it. Yeah. No, I don't send my papers to Darren before I send them into my class. <laughs> so that he, I don't want Darren grading my work. That's for sure. But uh, in, future in seminary kind of, students beware. Yeah, right. <laughs> Professor Darren ends. Avoid his class. Avoid uh, his class. Avoid it. But, don't do it. <laughs> so, but uh, the uh, the thought with like the multiple different ways of crossing, it's kind of like it's you'd argue lost to history. But wouldn't it? It kind of feels like one of those things. Like if it was actually found, you'd, or within convincing evidence that you just have, it would create more debate than what the truth of the story actually is. Or it's like it's you true. always have people going, well, if that it can't be this because of that. Yeah, Rob, there are so many websites devoted to either proving or disproving this, right? The the Red Sea crossing. And it's kind of fun to look at. They found pictures, what they say are chariot wheels covered in coral, you know, but you think about it. it, it imagine an army of people washed away by the water. They're going to run down, down downstream, right? And so we're not going to really find now, 3,500 years later, archaeological evidence probably uh, of a chariot wheel. Although there's some pictures that are floating around out there on the internet. Um, and if it's on the internet, it's true, right? I mean, of course. 100%. Yeah. I think Abraham Lincoln quoted that yeah. Yeah, I think it was. I think it was. Um, but but there have been people who've devoted their life to that, trying to disprove or prove it. And I don't think God, it's one of those things, again, God's like, it doesn't matter. Just you got to trust that I'm the one that led this. Speaking of archaeologic, archaeologic Indiana Jones evidence. Sorry, I can't say that word. <laughs> Archaeological? That's the one. Thanks, Darren. You bet, oh. you bet. Uh, like, there's not much evidence, if any, for the Israelites in an exodus like finding in a, like a historical record why is that i've got a fun opinion but i want to let darren go first <laughs> um 
Yeah, so there's one, the earliest evidence, or the earliest mention of Israel that we do have is uh, called the Merneptah Steel, or Stella. I still don't, my professors pronounce it differently anyway. Um, but it, it's a stone pillar that is used to record some arc, some historical events. Um, there's a, there, there's a, a stella that was found in Tel Dan that mentions the house of David, um, like in, in the middle of the, the first millennium BC. But there's a Merneptah steel that uh, mentions Israel in some of its lines here. And Merneptah was the successor to Ramses II, which is generally agreed by scholars as the uh, pharaoh who w- was the one um, who had to let the Israelites go. And so his son, who, by the way, was not his firstborn son, he had a bunch of sons die, including his firstborn. So Meneptah was like 13th son. He's the one who succeeded him. Uh, he he put he, he had inscribed on this stone a bunch of things um, that he later went on a military campaign towards Canaan, and he claimed to have conquered a bunch of it. Hmm. Um, here's what lines 26 to 28 say from that uh, inscription. The, Can- the Canaan has been plundered into every sort of woe. Ashkelon has been overcome. Gezer has been captured. Those are cities in ancient Palestine. Yenoam has been made non-existent. Israel is laid waste and his seed is not. Haru is become a widow because of Egypt. So he's claiming that he conquered these uh, places. And so he, he, he claims that Israel, as they entered Canaan a generation after Ramses II, uh, was reconquered. Um, there's not really evidence of that, but there certainly were some some military conquests in that in that area. So that's the earliest mention of Israel that we really do have. So, Drew, what's your fun opinion? Yeah, and you know, I wonder too. They always say that history goes to the victor, right? Yeah. And so, whoever writes the textbook is doing some self-preservation. One of the theories that I think is probably the most plausible, and I think many in church history have held to, is there's a reason there's no archaeological evidence for this, and that's because Egypt didn't want it to be known. You know, you imagine you have the pharaoh, you have your king, and you have all your military leaders completely wiped out. And in these days, you didn't have, you know, these, you know, this is a monarchy, right? You know, pharaoh was God. And so you couldn't have in writing that your, your man god, pharaoh, right, little g, god, Pharaoh gets, and the whole army gets decimated by big G, Yahweh God, in the record books. And plus, you have a whole generation of leaders now. And so imagine, you know, the whole army's gone, all the military leaders are gone, and all those military leaders were the, you know, that was the president, vice president, secretary of state, right? That was all mm-hmm. them. Now they're all gone. They've got to rebuild culture. So they're not going to write that down. They don't want anybody to know that. So a lot of people, their main proof that the Exodus was not, a lot of non-Christians or liberal scholars will say, well, the main proof the Exodus is not true is that we haven't found any archaeological evidence of it. Whereas we have found so many archaeological finds that prove Old Testament and New Testament facts. I mean, they're continually finding data and, and finds and digs all the time, which is amazing. But 3,500 years ago, they don't find any hieroglyphics. They don't find anything written about this event. And I think it's because... It would have been embarrassing to admit that they got destroyed and a whole generation of leaders were done. And who knows, Darren, as you kind of shared, you know, the Ramsey's son, uh, Manessa Steele, I think was what you said. Manefta. Um, Manefta. Maybe that was them trying to say, oh, no, we, we defeated Israel. Yeah, Boom. there's there's a ton of propaganda in the ancient Near East that these records are meant to, to 
put out there. Um, it wasn't until the Greeks with Herodotus, he was one of the first modern historians who sought to record history as it happened. Of course, we know that there's always a bit of a skew, but the Greek historical record was really the first one who, who tried to do our modern historical record keeping. So, yeah, a lot more propaganda in the ancient Near East. Um, like the, the the Assyrians have have stuff that says, we completely destroyed Israel and destroyed Jerusalem. Um, and, well, no, Jerusalem still existed. It wasn't until the Babylonians that it mm-hmm. was decimated, not you Assyrians. Right. And that's one of the things I love. I, I'm glad you said that, Darren. That's one of the things I love about what we have in Scripture is when you read the books, uh, you read the pages of Scripture, especially the Old Testament, man, Israel just looks so bad all the time, don't they? They just look weak and putrid and pathetic and terrible sinners who make mistakes. And I feel like it's, you know, it just, it's like, an, like God is showing us the honest view of mankind and humanity and whereas Egypt, Assyria, all these other countries are like, look how great we are. Look at all the things we do. It's like, actually, Israel, you guys, are, we're, we were terrible. We were weak. We were pathetic. We were it's horrible like people. Anti-propaganda. It's anti-propaganda, <laughs> which is what I think makes it makes it a show it that it's from God. God is showing us that He is the one that delivers. That actually, mankind, we have no power on our own. And I think that's what what makes it, you know, from our perspective, um, a true document that, that God breathed. No, it is interesting to think that. Like, I don't see too many second place banners in arenas where it's like, hey, we came in <laughs> right. second place this year. It's well, you, I see some runner ups. Unless you're an Indianapolis Colts fan. It's runner up, it's fan. not second place. Yeah, I mean, you don't, you know, when you think of the champions, they don't put up their second place banners. It's the guys that never win our champions. Like, ah, this is the closest we've ever gotten. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. But no, this is fun. And this is, you know, we talked about on Sunday as we kind of wrap up here. This is the pivotal event. So um, this was pointing forward what God would do on the cross, which he used to do on the cross and at the empty tomb. But throughout the rest of the Old Testament, this is the pivotal moment, the moment God always looks back to and says, remember when I rescued you out of Egypt, when you cross over the Red Sea. And so this stands as that climactic moment in the Old Testament. And what we're going to see now as we move on is we're going to see Israel now rescued from their enemies from slavery, and now God's going to take them through a wilderness experience where he's going to be shaping them and molding them to learn to trust him. And he's going to be trying to shake off all the idolatry from them because they spent their whole lives growing up around these Egyptian gods. And so God has a lot of work to do to shape and mold them as he takes them towards Mount Sinai. And so I'm super excited here in a couple of weeks as Darren's going to teach on the Ten Commandments because I think it's going to be really powerful of how God is trying to help his people see their true need for him um, and what it looks like to live in a theocracy, a kingdom of God. And Darren, you're coming, you're coming up soon with the 10 commandments then. What can we look forward? Any preview on that? Um, yeah. 10 commandments. And I'll talk about the law a little bit as well and how, how it was revolutionary for the time. Interesting. And then whenever, when we next week when we record, I know I'm going to have questions about the pillar of fire and pillar of smoke how they traveled around in the wilderness for the years and, you know, the importance of the smoke and the fire, I guess. I'm going to say a little teaser for next week, too. We're talking about manna, bread oh, yeah. from heaven. We used to thought it was Krispy Kreme And so a little, a little question to think about ahead of time is, yeah, Krispy Kreme donuts, Frosted Flakes. <laughs> a little question to think about ahead of time is, what does manna actually mean? What does that term actually mean? What's the definition? You should do your homework and come back next time for the answer. I'll, come, I'll try to come up with some options for you next time, Darren and Drew. 
Sorry. <laughs> multiple choice. Multiple choice. Yes, I love multiple. C. The answer is C. <laughs> or true, true, false. Even better. Yeah, all of the above. All right. Well, great. Any uh, parting words here as we wrap this up? There was one thing we didn't talk about, and it's my favorite, so I'm gonna talk about it. Okay. Sorry. Deal. Uh, it, but it, so, and it, yeah, one thing we plan to talk about, but I know we're running out of time. Uh, Exodus fourteen twenty one. Um, th- these words, as, as you read, as you read them in Hebrew, you would have noticed something early on. So here's what it says. Exodus fourteen twenty one. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and the Lord swept the sea back by a strong east wind all night and turned the sea into dry land. So the waters were divided. Some Hebrew words behind there is ruach. There's a wind. That's the same word that's translated uh, spirit uh, that or the breath of God was hovering over the waters in Genesis one. Uh, and there's waters being divided and there's dry land appearing. Come on, guys. This is another recreation story. Um, hmm. So after the, the decreation of the, the plagues, here we have God blowing wind. Uh, he's sending his spirit to blow the winds apart, and there's dry ground for his people to live on once again. Uh, he, he's recreating the body of Israel uh, right here. It's, it's truly amazing to see how all these stories relate to one another. My favorite thing ever. It's interesting how it keeps coming back to that. Yeah, huh. I wonder if there's a point in all of this. Hmm. You're saying they're all connected somehow. <laughs> <laughs> so, guys, I had fun today. I learned a lot, so I appreciate it. So if you have questions or thoughts, email them to hear us to life at ForefrontChurch.tv. We're putting together our question and answer episode, more specifically in the upcoming weeks. And we appreciate you guys for listening. Darren, Drew, thank you so much. You have been listening to More to the Story a weekly podcast featuring Pastor Drew Tarwater and Pastor Darren Enns of Forefront Church in Denver, Colorado. Each week, more to the story. Podcast will follow the Forefront Church Sunday sermon as Pastor Drew and Pastor Darren guide you through the Bible from Genesis through Revelation. Every podcast will feature in-depth analysis of the sermon and answer questions about the Bible. Thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another edition of more to the story.